recently. We've been studying through the Proverbs. Proverbial sayings are not new, they're not unique to the Bible, that is. We have proverbial sayings recorded for many different civilizations throughout history and even in our day, but we don't tend to think about it this way. We have our own standard set of proverbial sayings. What makes something a proverb in that sense is that it's a general truth. It's usually derived from an observation about the way things typically happen in life. And these sayings are often quoted to suggest or substantiate a certain course of action or thought process. We use them as a sort of anchor to ground ourselves and to ground our decisions in difficult situations. The reality is that we in our culture have a number of proverbial sayings used even in the context of the church that are okay sentiments but in the final analysis are not necessarily biblical. You've heard people say, for example, happy wife, happy life. (laughs) Now this is an okay sentiment. The sentiment is intended to suggest that a husband should be concerned for his wife. He should care for her needs. He should seek to do what makes her happy. Husbands should care for their wives, and the reality is that husbands are far too often concerned with their own desires and wants than considering what their wives or their, their wives want. However, the epitome of a happy life can never be relegated to making one person happy, even if that one person is your wife. The happy life, the blessed life, biblically, is a result of living for the good pleasure of God, seeking his will above all other things. We should care for our wives, we should love our wives, we don't seek our ultimate fulfillment in life through our wives. Not only does that dishonor God, but it places placing honor due to him on another, it also places a heavy burden on our wives that they simply cannot live up to. You've also heard people say, for example, something to the effect that I'm willing to sacrifice for my children. Some iteration of that. In fact, it is common to hear of a husband or a wife who have so sacrificed for their children, centered their focus and life pursuits on their children to the degree that they've largely neglected their marriage. And once their children are out of the home, you see vast numbers of husbands and wives divorcing. The sentiment, the desire to sacrifice for one's children is okay. There's nothing wrong with being willing to give to provide for your children, to meet their needs, etc. But biblically, we're never called to sacrifice for them. There's no chapter and verse, nor is there a principle in Scripture that calls for parents to sacrifice for their children. We are called to bring our children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. We're called to raise our children so that we can send them out for the glory of God, like arrows in the quiver of a warrior. We do raise our children in order to expand the influence of our family for the glory of God around the world. We're never commanded or charged to sacrifice for them. Jesus has done enough sacrificing for his people. What people tend to mean and what they do in practice when they, quote, sacrifice for their children is that they make their children the center of the family. Their children are the sum total of the family. They make significant family decisions only for their children. They spend large sums of money for their children. They spend vast hours at work, working overtime just for their children to have all of what they did not have growing up, and all of life becomes about their children. And that is simply not biblical. How about this proverbial saying? This too shall pass. I tend to hear this more from the older generations. 
Now, the sentiment is okay. By this, most people intend to suggest a positive outlook on life. This, just like many other difficulties I face, will also pass away. That tends to be the spirit in which it is said. There's nothing wrong with seeking to have a positive outlook on life. I personally seek to be realistic when it comes to future events, and my realism tends toward pessimism. That's something that I have to give to the Lord continually. But there's nothing wrong with trying to be more positive, and in fact, tending toward hopefulness is something that the Bible continually exhorts and encourages. And yet a positive outlook is certainly not the sum total of biblical hope. Biblical hope is rooted in a rock-solid confidence in the promises of God. If God has promised it, then it'll happen. So we can operate on the basis of his promise, much like we can operate on the basis of observable facts. Ultimately, the Christian hope looks forward to our final redemption. When Christ is revealed in glory, we will also be revealed in glory. We shall be like him. We'll have a transformed body, the, the same Uh, Paul says in in, in Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, that our body will be transformed in the same glory that uh, the Lord Jesus enjoys. In a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, he says in in Corinthians, uh, we shall all be changed. In that sense, everything truly shall pass. Every difficulty, every trial. And if that were what people meant when they say this too shall pass, then it would be all good. But I think that most people mean, and we're primarily concerned with Christians here, what most, pe- most Christians mean when they say this too shall pass is that this specific difficulty that they're facing right now, today, will eventually pass. And again, the sentiment is okay, it's just not biblical. Because God has not promised that any particular trial will pass for us. There's no guarantee that it'll pass away. And the reality is that any, the particular trial that you're in may be the very thing that takes you on to glory, or it may just continue with you until you get to glory. When we say this too shall pass, and we mean that we expect for this particular trial to, to end soon, we're effectively saying that we know better than the sovereign God who has ordained this particular trial. That we know that it is his will for this to come to an end, which is very presumptuous. We know the experience of the faithful has not been that things always pass. I mean, Paul prayed for the thorn in the flesh to leave him. Paul, the Apostle Paul, the one who planted, I don't know how many churches and wrote all the letters, most of the letters that we have in the New Testament to the church. I mean, if God were going to answer a prayer for anyone to be healed of something, it would be Paul, right? But what did he say to him? He said, no. Paul prayed, Lord, would you take this away? And God said no to him. He said, instead, I want you to know and I want you to learn that my grace is sufficient for you in the midst of it and that my strength is made perfect in your weakness. And of course, Jesus himself, when he approached Calvary, he prayed that the cup would pass before him and yet he also prayed what? Not my will, but your will be done. So we know that it's not always going to pass. Our hope is not that it will pass, but our hope and our confidence is that the Lord will remain with us. He'll abide with us in the midst of it. I'll give you one more. You've heard people say, preach the gospel, use words if necessary. 
This is a phrase we see on a lot of uh, church marquee signs, maybe in, a, on, in passing on the internet, a catchphrase on a meme or something of, of those nature, that nature. And obviously it's a good sentiment, right? I think part of the point is the desire to live out your faith and so that people will see your faith and in some way the gospel will be communicated. Paul uses uh, terminology in Titus of properly adorning the gospel by our good works. And the idea there is that we beautify the gospel. We make it, we make it beautiful. We make it plain for all to see when we walk in the good works that we've been prepared to walk in. The idea of preaching the gospel and using words only if necessary is a good sentiment, but it is certainly not biblical. To say that you should use words if necessary is to suggest that there are times when preaching the gospel doesn't need words. I think we understand that that's not accurate, right? I mean, whenever we talk about preaching, we talk about communicating truth through words. I mean, that's pretty clear as you look through Scripture. And the reality is that Paul says in Romans chapter 10 that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, has to be communicated by words. Sometimes those words are proclaimed by mouth. Sometimes those words are written down and they're read, but it has to be communicated by words. That is the way the gospel goes forth. Now, why am I taking time to elaborate on these proverbial sayings? Well, as I said last week, we are exploring four things the church must do. Jesus Christ gave up his life for us. He has particularly gifted us for a purpose, and these four things are indicative of that purpose. If we're going to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, in a manner that fulfills our purpose for Christ's sake, then we need to know what our purpose is. I said last week there are four things that we're going to explore over these weeks of this series. We must pursue the unity of the gospel. We must preach the gospel. We must protect the gospel, and we must Praise God for the gospel. Last week we talked about what it means to pursue the unity of the gospel. That involves us being diligent and using our gifts in particular. This week we're going to look at the second subject, namely that we must preach the gospel. And I hope that when you hear the term preach the gospel, you think verbally and not just, again, passively. By allowing your life to show certain things. Preach the gospel. Words are necessary. That's how the slogan ought to be. And while there are many noteworthy passages that we could explore as we're considering this topic, I thought it'd be good for us to take a look at Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 28. And there toward the end of Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, these are some of Jesus' last words to his disciples before he ascended to heaven. I think it's good for us to be reminded of these things. Go ahead and turn there if you haven't. And um, I'll read for us all of chapter 28 just to give some context and then we'll look at those those three verses in particular, 18, 19, and 20. Matthew chapter 28. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. 
And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb and with fear and great joy ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came up to him and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said, do not be afraid. Go to tell my brothers to go to Galilee and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ear, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word, your word which is true. We pray that you would sanctify us by your truth this morning. I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts collectively would be acceptable in your sight. For Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. In this text, we are called to make disciples of all nations in obedience to Jesus, knowing that Jesus is with us. This is a simple message of Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Make disciples of all nations in obedience to Jesus, knowing that Jesus is with us. Part of what I want to argue as we consider the command to make disciples of all nations is that there's an implicit expectation that we are actively verbally communicating or in some way preaching the truth of the gospel. Nevertheless, we're called here to make disciples. And in these few verses of Matthew 28, we see the basis of our calling in verse 18, the business of our calling in verse 19 and the first part of verse 20, and the blessing of our calling at the end of verse 20. The basis, the business, and the blessing. Let's look at the first point, the basis of our calling to make disciples in verse 18 of Matthew 28. Again, and Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Well, it's catechism time. If you guys weren't expecting that. If you know what a catechism is, a catechism is designed to help communicate information in a way that's meaningful, easy to remember. It's literally oral instruction. In the church, it's come to refer to a method of teaching theological truth. Some of the more well-known catechisms take the form of question and answer 
And that is the form of this catechism that I'm going to give to you today. Here's the question. Why is the church responsible for making disciples of all nations? And here's the answer. Because the Lord of heaven and earth commands them to do so. That's it. Why is the church responsible for making disciples of all nations? Because the Lord of heaven and earth commands them to do so. Look back at verse 18. And Jesus came and said to them. If you recall, Jesus had just spent three years or so with this ragtag group of disciples. He spent time catechizing them, orally instructing them concerning the kingdom that belonged to his father and that would be made available through him as the son and savior. And then he was crucified on the cross. While Jesus tried to communicate to them that this was supposed to happen, the disciples in their weakness and imperfections could not help but to despair. Well, we had a good run, but the master is dead now. I mean, death is final, right? It's permanent. Yet Jesus, yes, Jesus had performed some miraculous things during his time, but he is the one who performed the miracles, and people don't just raise themselves from the dead, right? Well, he is risen from the dead. And as the angel said, he is risen from the dead just as he said he would. And having been risen from the dead, he continues to do what he had been doing for the past three years. He continues to instruct the disciples in the way that they should go. And once they understood all of what this meant, the impact, the reality of the fact that Jesus is standing before them, risen from the dead, all they could do, much like Thomas in John chapter 20, verse 28, is proclaim my Lord and my God. He is who he said he is. He is the son of God. He is God in the flesh. He must be. No human being can rise themselves from the dead. According to 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus appeared to them for a number of days and appeared to some 500 people at once. But here in Matthew chapter 28, we see him directing them to go to a particular mountain so that he could give them some final instructions. Now, what does he say to them in his final words? The first thing that he says is, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, that has to be significant. Now, what does he mean by authority? This word has to do with power, the power to command, to control, to govern. He says it is all authority, and yet we know that the only one who has all authority is God alone. And God has no interest in sharing that authority with anyone. In fact, all of his dealings with humanity, even in blessing Israel, all of his dealings with humanity have been for the purpose of exercising his authority and demonstrating to the nations that there really is no higher authority than his. Listen to this passage in Isaiah chapter 45. Verse 17, it says, But Israel is saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. For thus says the Lord, who created the heavens, he is God, who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is no other. 
I did not speak in secret in the land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about wooden idols and keep on praying to a God they can, who cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, for my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return to me. Every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. This has been a consistent message. God is alone the Savior. God is alone God. He has declared this in no uncertain terms to Israel, yes, but through Israel, God has declared this in no uncertain terms to the nations. He is God alone. There's no higher authority. And yet we understand as we consider the breadth of Scripture that while there is no higher authority than God, it has always been in the mind of God that he would grant his authority to another, ultimately This person came to be known as the Messiah of Israel. He would come through Israel. He would rule and reign over creation, over humanity on behalf of God. Daniel prophesied about him in Daniel chapter 7. It says this, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And of course, Daniel was serving the Lord as a prophet in a time when the nations would have come to know that message through him. David also spoke of the one who was to come in Psalm chapter 2. Why do the nations rage? And again, this is a universal message. And why do the peoples plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. And then comes a warning. Now now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And you see there the image of the one who was to come, the Messiah, being called the anointed one, being called the king who God has appointed, being called the son, the one to whom God is giving the nations as a heritage, the ends of the earth as his possession. 
the one to whom God says, you must kiss the son. We have that imagery in, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> we have that imagery and usually we see in movies where there is a king or ruler and someone is coming before to present themselves before this king or ruler and the king usually <clears throat> extends his hand and the person must take his hand and kiss his hand as a show of obedience and subservience. And that's the idea here. Kiss the son. Obey the son. Bow before the son. He is the one who's been given this authority. <coughs> Back to Isaiah, he also prophesied about the coming of the Messiah. And he made clear that this coming ruler would be the son of David and rule on a throne. Isaiah chapter 9, and we usually hear this around Christmas time. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And so all of the people of God have been looking forward to the coming of this one who would rule over creation on behalf of God. This has been their expectation. As we get back to Matthew, up until this point in history, that has not happened. There are many who came and appeared to be the ones who would redeem Israel, but ultimately they failed. They were killed off. So we encounter this Jesus who has been proclaiming himself to be the Messiah and yet who also died. And yet now here they see him risen from the dead. And instead of coming out and saying, see, guys, I told you I was the Messiah. What does he say? He says, no, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In case there was any doubt, this is total authority. He says, all authority. We understand what that means, right? It means all, every, without exception. Every bit of authority has been given to Jesus. There is nothing in all of God's creation that is accepted from his authority. And we had glimpses of this during his earthly ministry, right? He demonstrated authority over nature. Jesus calmed the storm in Matthew chapter 8. Even his disciples exclaimed, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? Jesus turned water into wine in John chapter 2. Jesus healed the sick. <clears throat> Places like Matthew chapter 8 verse 13, he healed the centurion servant without even being present. Jesus even raised Lazarus from the dead. He has authority over nature he has authority to forgive sins in Matthew chapter 9 verse 6 there he healed the paralytic and he made clear he has authority even to forgive sins he has authority even over the spiritual realm again he says all authority in heaven and on earth not only does he calm the storms exercise power over the elements heal the sick the lame even raise the dead but he cast out demons Matthew chapter 12, he cast out a demon from a man born blind and mute. In 17, he cast out a demon from a young boy. 
And Paul picks up on this because there is a lot of spiritual darkness and spiritual warfare and spiritual wickedness happening and fighting against the church. And Paul made clear frequently that Jesus has authority over even the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. <coughs> Jesus even spoke of the authority that he has to preach of the kingdom and authority even of, it, of his own life. He made clear of the authority that the Father had given to him, and he used that as an invitation to the kingdom. In Matthew chapter 11, all things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father. No one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And then he says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He says, I've been given all authority. Come to me. He spoke of the authority that he has to lay down his life and even to take it up again in John chapter 10. Jesus has all authority. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. There's nothing outside of his purview, nothing outside of his lordship. He has authority over nature, authority to forgive sins, authority over the spiritual realm, authority to preach the kingdom, even authority over his own life, both to lay it down and to take it up. Jesus has total authority. Not only does he have a total authority, he also has a triumphant authority. Again, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That is a statement of triumph. He was given this authority as a result of his perfect obedience to the Father. Paul picks up on this in Philippians chapter 2. He exhorts us to have this mind among ourselves, which was ours in Christ Jesus, who although he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. And he draws a conclusion in the next verse. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You should hear in that a re recall from Isaiah chapter 45 that I read earlier where God said, to me every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. And here that is attributed to the person of Jesus. That's all of his, as a result of his obedience. His obedience even to the point of death on a criminal's cross. Remember Psalm 2, the nations are a heritage, a gift from the father to his anointed son. In Psalm 2, the contrast is between the nations who have rejected the rule of God, rejected his will, and the son who has perfectly obeyed his will and to whom he is granting the gift of the nations. We know that this was also Jesus' attitude during his earthly life. Total obedience. In John chapter 4, after he had spoken to the woman at the well and his disciples returned and they wanted to feed him, 
physical food because it had been a while and Jesus was clearly tired and weary physically. And he said to them, my food is to do the will of my father. To accomplish his work. That's my food and drink. That's how I am sustained. And even his attitude in the face of death at the end of his life before the cross. When he prayed, father, let this cup pass from before me and yet. Not my will, but thine will be done. We cannot earn the reward of God, no matter how obedient we claim to be. Our sin has tainted all of our works, and yet Jesus earned the reward of God because of his perfect obedience to his Father, both in life and in death. That's why we hear the Father proclaiming from heaven, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Jesus had been granted a role, a position, a name that is above every other name because of his perfect obedience. Paul says it this way in Ephesians chapter 1. He raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and power and authority and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he has put all things under his feet. Jesus earned the name that is above every name. He earned his authority. He earned eternal life. There should be no question as to why Jesus is risen from the dead. Why he had to raise from the dead. Why it says in, in one text that death could not hold him. <coughs> it's because of his perfect obedience. We earn death for our sins. Paul says in Romans 6 that the wages of sin is death, but Jesus never sinned. He is called Jesus Christ the righteous because, again, he perfectly obeyed his Father in life. And therefore, he was granted life from the dead. As we get deeper into the theology of the Son in Scripture, we recognize that this has always been in the mind of God, the exaltation of of his son as Lord over all as the prophesied Messiah has always been the plan. <coughs> we see things like in Colossians chapter 1 where we, we read that God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, meaning it is a kingdom that belongs to him, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins, he is the image of the invisible God, the Son, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, whether vis visible or and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. Listen, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. We could miss that, those two words, that all things were created for him as a gift to him for his good pleasure, for his rule. In Ephesians, Paul says it this way, in him, again, in the son, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. And what was the plan? to unite all things in him, things in the heaven and things on earth. 
That's always been God's plan. That Jesus Christ would be Lord over all. And we see in the Revelation, Jesus envisioned as returning to exercise that authority and judgment spoken of in Psalm chapter 2, that judgment over the nations. In Revelation, he is called the King of kings and the Lord of lords. In Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in robe. His cl- he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. That day is coming. So again, back in our text, when Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, he is declaring himself in no uncertain terms to be the prophesied Messiah, the son of David, the king of Israel. In fact, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. The one who has been granted power and authority to rule on behalf of God as God over all the nations of the earth and over all of heaven. The one who will someday soon return to measure out the judgment of God with his full authority. God has granted all of his authority and all of his power to his son. I wonder, have you trusted in the one who has been given all authority in heaven and on earth? Have you put your faith in him? Are you trusting in the Lord as your savior? And if so, do you honor him as Lord? We love John 3:16 for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. But we dare not forget John 3:35. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. He is good, but as C.S. Lewis said, he is not safe. We dare not take his goodness for granted. Catechism time, once again. Same question. Why should the church make disciples of all nations? Answer. Because the Lord of heaven and earth commands it. Now, what difference does that make? Well, here Jesus does not command us to be more holy and then to make disciples. We ought to be holy as he is holy. We know that. First Peter chapter 1, verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all of your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. We ought to pursue holiness, to actively turn away from evil, even the things that have the appearance of evil. 
And yet having that weight and sin that so easily entangles us does not excuse us from this responsibility as disciples of Christ to make disciples of Christ from all the nations. He does not command us to be friends with everyone and then to make disciples. There's this whole subculture of friendship evangelism, which, again, is a good sentiment. And we ought to be kind. Galatians chapter 6.10. So then as we have the opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. We ought to be kind to others. We ought to be friendly. And yet we are not commanded here to wait until we have a well-established friendship with anyone before we make disciples. He does not command us to be more professional and then to make disciples. We are to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. As we discussed from Ephesians chapter 4 last week, we ought to pursue the unity of the Spirit by using our gifts diligently to bless one another. There is a duty that we have to one another, and yet the command to make disciples is not given to the professionals. The command to make disciples is not only given to those who have gone to seminary. It's not only given to those who are paid pastors or evangelists. The command to make disciples is not only given to those who have titles. The command to make disciples is given by the Lord of heaven and earth to all of his people, period. In other words, we don't need any other permission to make disciples. I remember a brother in one of the churches I used to attend who made me chuckle from time to time because we would sing the song, At the Cross, At the Cross, where I first saw the light and the burden of my heart rolled away. And uh, this dear brother, who was a, a fervent evangelist, every time we sung that song, At the Cross, At the Cross, he would say, At the Cross, At the Cross, where I first met the boss. And I thought that, is, that was such a neat, you know, kind of funny, funny thing. It made me chuckle until I thought about it. And, I, th- and I, I realized that he's absolutely right. At the cross is where we meet the boss. Because Jesus is, again, what? The king of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the boss of bosses. And we ought to think about him that way. He is the commander in chief. He is the head of the church, yes, but he is Lord over all people, whether they like it or not, whether they acknowledge it or not, whether they accept it or not, whether they're your friend or not, Jesus is still Lord over all. Question is, do you believe that? If you believe that, then you wouldn't wait for permission to tell someone about him. He's given you all the permission you need. Now I encourage you to remember, just as someone once said, God doesn't call the qualified, but he qualifies the called. You can find a whole host of reasons not to proclaim the gospel. Again, maybe you struggle with sin, maybe you're too busy, you don't You're not a pastor. You're not an evangelist. I mean, isn't it the pastor's job to save souls, right? To get people in the church, in the seats, and save all the souls? Maybe you just feel like you don't know enough theology. 
But again, none of those things are added as qualifications to this command. The boss, the king of kings and lord of lords, the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth, has simply commanded you to make disciples. Of all the people, Paul was probably the most qualified, humanly speaking. He makes his argument in Philippians chapter 3. He was a Hebrew. He knew the Old Testament. He studied as a Pharisee. He kept the law, humanly speaking, probably one of the most ardent in pursuit of the law. And yet, in his mind, none of those things mattered. In fact, in Philippians chapter 3, he says that he counted all of those things that he could consider as his own personal qualifications. He counted those things as loss, as refuse. Because he knew that ultimately it wasn't about how he qualified he felt. But it was about the fact that God was at work in him to proclaim the truth of the gospel. He even says that in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who made us as sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Beloved, just as Jesus was called and sent to accomplish the purposes of God, so are we. Just as Jesus was called and sent to obey, no matter the cost, so are we. Jesus was given a mission. His mission was to live and die for the glory of the Father and the good of his people. We have been given a mission. We have been called by our Lord to make disciples. Again, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The question is, are you doing that? If you are doing that, are you doing it because you feel like you're the most qualified to do it? Or are you doing it simply because the boss, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the one who has all authority in heaven and on earth has commanded you? When it gets hard, do you give up because you feel like you don't have enough strength or energy or because the people are too hard-hearted or too hard-headed? Or do you persist because you know the King of Kings and Lord of Lords has commanded you? Our scripture reading from earlier in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. God doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called and beloved. He has qualified us by giving us of his Holy Spirit and committing to us the ministry of reconciliation. And again, the question is, are you doing that? Are we doing that as a church? Is that the business that we are about? When you consider the business of the Catonsville Baptist Church, 
the things that we put our hands to do, programs, outreach opportunities, is that about the business that we have been called to, making disciples of all nations? Is that in your heart? Is that in your prayers for the Catonsville Baptist Church, that we would be about the business of making disciples of all nations because our commander-in-chief, the Lord of heaven and earth, has commanded us to do so? Not because we feel the most equipped, not because we feel the most qualified, but because Jesus said so. And we want to obey him. Well, this is the basis for our call to make disciples of all nations. It is the reality that Jesus is the prophesied Messiah. He is the Lord of heaven and earth, and he commands us to make disciples. Next week, we'll pick up there and finish the rest of this passage. Father, we thank you for this day. And thank you for the reminder that the one who we call our Savior, the one who we call Lord, is not just anyone. The one who we rejoice in and about whom our hearts are filled with thankfulness is not just anyone. He is again the King of kings. He is the Lord of lords. And as we think about what we have been called to as your people, we have to acknowledge and we have to recognize, we have to remember that we have been called by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords to make disciples of all nations. And we're called to do this not because or when we feel particularly gifted or called or qualified to do it, we're not called to do this when we feel particularly holy or righteous or good. We're not called to do this when we feel like it. We're called to do this by our commander-in-chief, by our king, by our boss as a matter of first importance. We must as the church, as the Catonsville Baptist Church, be about the business of making disciples of all nations because our Lord has commanded us. Would you burden our hearts with that truth? And would you help us to will and to work for your good pleasure? In Christ's name, amen. Prepare for...